I'm your host, Will Krebs, and this is the Under Pressure Outdoors Podcast. gone out and filled your tag, shot your limit, or filled the stringer full of fish. Now what? Have you ever heard someone say they don't like wild game because it tastes too gamey? Is the only way you've ever had venison in a cheeseburger? Well, have no fear, because we have the answers to all those questions and more. Tonight, we're joined by Adam Berkelmans from the Intrepid Eater to discuss how he crafts some absolutely amazing meals from the meat and vegetables he sources in the wild. So I got here at the table with me now. I've got Jim. Hello, Jordan. You got oh, to say yeah, something. Sorry, <laughs> Briar. Hey, how's it going? And uh, Adam, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, Intrepid Eater? Sure. So, like I said, I'm Adam Brookmans. I uh, run a brand called the Intrepid Eater. Um, I'm basically, a recipe developer. I run a food blog on on Facebook and Instagram. Kind of go a little bit. Um, different than most food blogs i i like to keep i have a website full of recipes and how to's and i like to keep that nice and simple where the recipes are easy to find i do all my day-to-day writing and, and dinner pictures on uh on social media um i focus primarily on wild food but not exclusively so i don't eat nothing but wild food but uh, a lot of my recipes deal with uh wild forest food or fish or wild game um yeah, I was uh, born in London, Ontario, up in Canada, which is about two hours northeast of Detroit, for anyone who doesn't know. Uh, grew up in the suburbs, uh, no hunting whatsoever, didn't know any hunters. My family didn't hunt. Um, we did a little bit of fishing and a lot of a lot of camping. Uh, so I was familiar with the outdoors, but uh, never even realized that this whole hunting culture kind of existed outside of where I, I grew up. Um, but I was always interested in in cooking and food and in eating and in wild food. I was like um, foraging quite young and I was always very interested in all that. And I was also interested in the outdoors. So it was kind of a natural progression to get to where I am today, despite not having that that generational culture of hunting. Um, yeah, I lived kind of all over Ontario and, and Alberta and Quebec and I worked like whole bunch of different jobs just kind of bounced around for a long time doing um i've been like a country forest ranger uh worked in conservation riparian restoration kind of stuff um been a canoe guide park operations i got into farming for a while um <laughs> i did a lot of butchering so i kind of just did the whole the whole different spread of, of jobs and, and experiences and lately i find myself uh, living just north of kingston which is about two hours north of syracuse uh new york and uh we my partner kathy and i live on this beautiful little lake um and yeah, i'm running the intrepid eater thing so that's where i'm at today that's pretty cool it sounds like uh, it probably would have been easier for you to just tell us what you haven't done for a job uh, <laughs> than, than what you have done for a living <laughs> Yeah, I've been all over the place. <laughs> so uh, you you consider yourself an adult onset hunter? Yeah, that's correct. I've just started 
I just turned uh, 37 and I started two years ago. So I started pretty late in life um, doing this whole hunting thing. So it's, it's becoming more common to see adults who are taking up an interest in the outdoors today. You know, how did you get, I guess your start into the hunting and fishing and what made you take that leap? I think, um, I think it was a bit of a natural progression for me. Like I started really young, just being very interested in the outdoors. So, um, you know, I was like learning bird calls when I was really young. I was camping with my parents. My dad would take me fishing every once in a while. So I did go fishing. Um, I read, uh, I don't know if you guys have heard of Tom Brown Jr. He wrote a bunch of books on kind of living survival and living out in the wild. Uh, I read all those when I was really young and, uh, and was teaching myself how to, how to be in the wild. Um, so as time went on, I felt that hunting really belonged in my life, but I was moving around every year too. I was doing all these different things. Whenever I met people who hunted and who were willing to take me out, I would just get a new job and, and bugger off to another, another city somewhere. So I never had a chance to actually go out and do it. Um, but I was exposed to it quite a bit. Like I, I kind of went at it backwards. I was butchering wild animals before I ever shooting them or anything. Um, and, and dealing with the food side of it a lot more. And finally, in the last few years, I was settled down long enough, met a couple of guys to bumble around in the woods with me and actually start hunting and getting into it. And, uh, I just really wanted to start cooking with wild food and, and to add that element of, of the outdoor world onto my, uh, into my experience. So, yeah. You mentioned Tom Brown <clears throat> and I'm not familiar with him though. I think I'm going to get there. The first thing I pulled up was, uh, was one of his books, Tom Brown's field guide to nature observation and tracking. The second thing that popped up was a t-shirt that says, all I care about is Tom Brown, maybe three people and pizza. <laughs> so no matter how hard you are everybody likes pizza yeah <laughs> he actually put out a, a book for kids like tracking and, and nature awareness for for children and i read that when i was quite young and i remember in i think i was in grade three or four and we we did a project and we were supposed to teach like through this essay or something we we're supposed to teach someone something so I'd been learning how to stock deer through these books and, and like how to how to properly put your feet down quietly and the whole kind of uh, way just to, to silently creep up on a wild animal. So I did my project on stocking, uh, not being aware that that could have different connotations to an adult. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think my teacher was quite, quite worried for me there for a little while, but... <laughs> Sounds like we could uh, we should get that book for Briar if it teaches him how to walk quiet in the woods. Yeah, <laughs> you go spook it anyways. I thought you know, you're talking about stalking. Yeah, that is you know that's cultural appropriation, man. Yeah, they've taken what we do, twisted it, and made it mainstream in a perverted way. Yeah, stalking is hunting. Yeah, yeah, not perving. Yeah. <laughs> So did you have a mentor when you when you started hunting, or is it just something you and your group of friends just kind of figured out from Yeah, from it was just and- kind of Yeah, there I really didn't have any mentors at all. Um always been 
like an autodidact, like always taught myself and read a ton and try to learn new things on my own. But uh, hunting is a tough one for that. And uh, my couple buddies and I, we've um, everyone's kind of new at it, and we're just kind of bumble our way through everything and make a lot of mistakes. And uh, it's pretty slow going, and uh, but it's been a lot of fun all the same. Well, see, I think that makes a lot of fun because then everybody's making that mistake together, right? You don't feel like such a dummy for making some kind of mistake that you didn't know because then you got your same group of guys with you making the same mistake. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, we're all dummies together, so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but when you, when you We do, are too, so. If somebody, I, I, and admittedly, I love a combination of both because I love success and sometimes the easy button is just great. But when you when you go out and you there's still a large learning curve in front of you, and there's failure. Well, usually failure, 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 and then finally, you know whether it's just dumb luck or you're putting the different pieces that you gain with each failure together. When it finally comes together, I mean, there's nothing better. And then you get to drag it home and take it to stage two and, and make eye candy. Yeah, and I'm, I'm much better at that part. So, so, so that first part, that's always the hardest part for me. I'm slowly getting better at it, but uh, once I get it home, it, everything goes a lot smoother now, which is nice. Okay. How did you, if I, I'm going to jump in and steal this question here, but um, I'm always really impressed with the foraging that you do. And I saw that you found mm-hmm. your first chicken of the woods recently. And um, I'm, I'm really interested in, in how you got into the mycology. Did somebody teach you that or did you? Did you auto learn that on your own? Did you really just kind of wander out there and start picking mushrooms? Because um, when when I spend a lot of time in the woods, I'm uh, fantastic at finding things that I'm rather certain are death caps, destroying angels, you know, autumn skull cap, um, jack o' lanterns, all the tasty ones, man. Yeah. Oh, I'm yeah. I'm sure they're delicious. They'll Once be, they'll be the last mushroom you ever eat. Yeah. Yeah, man. Um, course everything down where we are is pretty much designed to sting you kill you make you bleed also just make no, sure you the don't mushrooms no different like that. <laughs> how did so how did you go about it it was yeah it's kind of the same i've just been doing wild edibles for like since i was a child um and I don't even remember the first ones I ever found. It's just always kind of been a thing with me. My parents didn't show me how to do it. I just was, I needed, I liked the outdoors and I liked food. So I just kind of mixed them together and found what I could. And for years, I just did kind of the easy stuff. Uh, raspberries, like, you know, all the easier uh, ones. And in the last few years, I really just started getting into the mushrooms and I started feeling more confident about it. Um, my rule was to learn one mushroom per season so i would i would find a mushroom that i wanted to find and learn all about it read all about it look on youtube join facebook groups like do the whole thing learn everything i possibly could about it then go search for it and then bring it home a couple times throw in the garbage bring it home throw in the garbage and eventually i felt good enough that i could actually eat it and uh so i started doing that and started building a repertoire of mushrooms that i could trust myself with that had no other lookalikes and from there i just started getting better and better at it you just the more you know the the easier it is it's kind of like if you know five languages the six comes pretty easily um 
you just kind of start picking up all the little telltale signs. And now I'm adding, you know, like four or five different mushrooms every year to my repertoire. Wow. Um, yeah. And I'm just kind of steeping myself in it. So like I, um, on Facebook, I basically hit all my friends and family and I just have mushroom pages scrolling through. So I just <laughs> see it constantly. Uh, <laughs> and that really helps it's better than a guidebook almost because you get to see it over and over and repetitious and you get to see all different forms and varieties of these mushrooms rather than just a kind of a sketch in, in one guidebook you might own. Um, yeah. So mushrooms are new and it's been just so much fun and, and a really cool, like culinary adventure dealing with them. Fantastic. I'm hoping to get good at it because uh, everything I find is usually powdery white throughout with gills on the bottom. And everything that I've been able to read on that is like, that's just, that's death in your hands. Don't eat that one. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're always best off finding the ones that have no lookalikes at all. Like that's just for sure an edible mushroom and, and start with that one. <laughs> yeah. We, we don't have morels down here. So. No. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like down, down where you guys are, everything wants to kill you, but the weather's great. And up where I am, it's pretty benign, but the weather will try to kill you. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, it's not... Not to discredit the heat, because the heat will get you. So yeah. you ask anybody yeah. who works construction in Florida and see if the weather's trying to kill them or not. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> I think I think you pretty much have said that it sounds like mushrooms are your favorite foraging. I know technically it's a fungus, not a vegetable, but for intents and purposes, they're your favorite veggie substance, it sounds like. But do you have any others that you, that you I mean, ramps, when I was a kid, ramps are pretty easy to identify. Um, hard to screw those up because you can smell them for a million miles away. Uh, but what else do you like to forage out there? Uh, the, the ramps around where I live have been pretty picked pretty clean um, through unsustainable collecting and harvesting methods. So I generally don't actually find many of those, wow. which is unfortunate. And I try not to promote picking them too much because they've already been just decimated around here. Um, but I do get excited in the spring when all the new greens come up. So like stinging nettles and all those types of things. And it's the first wild edibles that you can actually collect in the spring after a long winter of not being able to pick anything. Uh, I get really excited about that. So I'm dancing around, tromping through the forest in the spring, picking all sorts of greens. And uh, and then in, in the summer, it's kind of berries. And in the fall, it's mushrooms. So uh, yeah, as much as I can. Unless it's snowing, it sounds like. Yeah, there's not much to pick in the snow. There's a little bit, but you'd be hard pressed to survive <laughs> here in the just eating wild edibles in the winter. So, being that there's not much to forage on in the winter, what is your favorite game to go in the field and search for? So far, it's been uh, Canada Goose for me, actually. Yeah, um, say, that's, a, yeah. <laughs> that's a fun one. Yeah, yeah, I love it. It's first of all, I've been very successful at it, and compared to the deer I haven't shot yet and the bear I haven't shot yet and all these things that I haven't actually got, which maybe my story will change if I eventually get one of those things. But uh, uh, goose, I'm successful mo- like 95% of the time and you get a ton of meat and you can hang out with some friends and chat. Like you don't have to be deadly still or quiet and just uh, I find it really exciting. And then I really love cooking with them too. And I also love cooking with kind of a maligned food. Like a lot of people say goose 
isn't any good. Wrong. Um, and I just love proving them wrong. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was going to say, because I've heard so many people say, like, oh, goose is greasy, goose is tough. Like, yeah. Throw it in the garbage if you kill it. I don't think I've heard that about Canada. A lot of people say snow goose is disgusting. Well, people also tell you that moorhens taste bad, and so do coots and all the other stuff we cook up yeah. and eat. And it yeah. tastes wonderful. Uh, <clears throat> that all goes back to how you're how you prepare it. So it's my understanding you aren't a classically trained chef. Chef. So how did you learn to uh, cook the way you do today? Yeah, it's uh kind of took a backwards route towards it. Um, I grew up um, cooking since I was really, really little. Like I think at seven years old, I was cooking on my own already, standing on a stool just to reach the stove. Um my parents have old camcorder footage of me just like have the, the fridge door open one hand leaning on the inside and just staring into the fridge for, for 10 minutes with my mind thinking of all these combinations of things. So I came by it. Honestly, I I've been just obsessed as, ever since I was a kid, like I was cooking dinners regularly by 12. Um, you know, for my birthday, we went to Toronto. I just wanted to go into the, the Chinese grocery stores in Chinatown so I wasn't a wasn't a normal cut. I was asking for chef's knives for my birthday instead of video games. Uh, even like, I think when I was sixteen or seventeen, I was arguing with my parents that I put a TV in my bedroom, which they didn't want me to do because I might be watching something they didn't want me to. But I just stayed up all night watching Food Network. Uh, <laughs> so, Bam! So it's a, <laughs> a food game. Uh, yeah, so at one point in high school, I was thinking that I wanted to become a chef. Um, and I was taking, I was planning on going to Italy and staging there or whatever, and I was taking Italian classes. And the more I learned about it, the less I wanted to be that. Um, I didn't want all the fiddly, fancy kind of stuff. And I didn't want to be locked in the kitchen for the rest of my life because I liked being outside so much. And uh, I really had to stop and think about it at one point before I went to college. And I decided that, you know, if I could go get a job and work outside, I could be outside all day. I can come home and cook every day anyways. Um, Where if I take a job in cooking, it's very unlikely I'll ever be able to get outside again. So, so I decided to go take the outdoor route and I went to like a um, outdoor, I did outdoor um, park operations and ecotourism in school. And uh, and just kept cooking on the side all the time, so I think that was a much better much better route for me. Yeah, we think you you got to the chef route one way or another. Now, it may not be in a commercial yeah. kitchen, but you also got to skip the three or four years where all you do is cut onions and potatoes and carrots. <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you <know? laughs> so yeah, you're yeah. what you make. Um, you and I both will throw things on uh, a Facebook site called uh, the the Wild Fish. Wild fishing game. Oh goodness, I'm butchering that. Um, <laughs> and there was a while where I said, I'm not going to throw anything up there because everything that Adam puts out is just it's ab- it's got to taste good, man. If the stuff you make doesn't taste good, I'm crushed because it's a feast for the eyes, and you you have a talent in the way that you lay things out, and and then you're 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 quite skilled with the camera as well. So I think the first thing that I posted up there was a. Uh, 
<laughs> I think it was a sliced venison sandwich with 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 uh, <laughs> on white bread with 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 a uh, horseradish sauce, like and a beer. You know, what I mean? <laughs> and, you know and and thank you because you, you're always so kind. Um, but uh, you know, Adam, you're in a you're in a class all by itself. I will stick with the very utilitarian things and let you make beautiful creations. So, well, all my all my food tastes like crap, so it just looks good. <laughs> I, I somehow doubt that. And, and you and you mentioned that you work with maligned animals because you've done some wonderful things with bass, pike. Um, heck, you even work with what I would refer to as unusual trees. I, I saw a YouTube video that you did where you made hickory syrup. And immediately, I wanted mm. to be the first kid on my block making hickory syrup until I looked up the genus of hickory trees we have in Florida. And they are not, they call them hickory, but they are not the same animal. And I'm pretty sure that if I were to try to make that, it'd probably be making ricin or strychnine or something like that. But that shaggy hickory bark uh, apparently is quite useful. Yeah, how far south does that go down? Uh, do you know? It, it does. I think it goes all the way down to about Tennessee, so about okay. halfway down the the country. So anybody that's listening up there, you, if you're walking past um, Shaggy Bark Hickory, I would encourage you to go to Intrepid Eater because it looks like what you're walking past is a wonderful resource. We had some mm. Shaggy Bark Hickory on the place I hunted in Tennessee, so it's it's definitely there. They got it on Fort Campbell. <clears throat> uh, they might, but you can't take any of it. Says but you. I, but I might, says the federal government. But I might can get <laughs> says you. the federal government. <laughs> but we we can probably get down on some property and see if we can find some. Yeah, I think I want to come back with a sack full, like a whole suitcase. Because <laughs> I suitcase. I had found. I mean, you you can well, when I was there, you couldn't take the mushrooms. You couldn't. That's the only place I could ever find morels. You get caught with that. That's that's a big no no. Taking at that point, like they didn't even want you to take sheds, but they weren't going to ticket you for taking a shed, but they'd get you for taking. Uh, morels or ginseng or any of that stuff out of there. Damn. That's not how I wanted to be on a watch list. (laughs) (laughs) I think you're already on one. (laughs) But so who, who and who or what has inspired your cooking style? It's been kind of circuitous. I've, I've kind of always been interested in, in, um, international food. And, and I really enjoy traveling too. So that's always really influenced, um, how I cook and a lot of the wild game dishes I do cook come from different international kind of recipes that I find, uh, which is a lot of fun. But, um, one of the biggest influences was definitely Anthony Bourdain, which most cooks can say, but he made a massive impact in my, in my teenagehood. Um, I had all these kind of vague thoughts about food swirling around my brain and he just put words to it all and, and, and laid it all out kind of nice and cleanly in a very poetic way. And, uh, it made a big difference in my life. It was the first time you like, you could really see someone who was passionate for food and it wasn't stuck on all the little details. Like he would go and, and learn from poor people who are cooking way more interesting food than, than rich people ever eat. Um, and that really, really spoke to me. And I think I've been kind of cruising f- since then, like on this course that, that was definitely set by Anthony Bourdain at one point. Um, and from there I just had, you know, like a, a hundred different teachers through books and through 
YouTube and through everything else through the internet. It's been, it's been one one person after another, right where I needed them. They like when I needed some new, re- fresh kind of inspiration, there was just always someone waiting there to give it to me. So I've been feel pretty lucky in that respect. I mean, we talked a lot the other night about how uh, uh, food brought about by the Great Depression and things of that. Uh, the recipes have they influenced the culture and just Southern cooking. Like grits. Grits mm-hmm. and yeah. adding in the, just you're using fat to make things, to give it you know, like a caloric content and how Crack that's hunks. become such a, a staple today and in, in what it is that we have, the, the type of cooking you have in the South. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, sorry, I didn't mean to step on you, Jordan. <clears throat> we we traded back and forth a little bit about grits, and I do I do play that up a little bit. But they are they really are a staple in the South, um, and there are there are bad grits. It's a total. It's such a waste when people turn their grits into hockey pucks. But even that fried ain't so bad. But um, <laughs> that that utilitarian food, I love it and. When you and I were going back about that, I, I did mend it. So when we get offline, I, I'd like you to send me your address because we'll get sure. you some we'll get you some primo grits. And once oh, we get a once we get some, another stash of under pressure outdoor hats, we'll we'll make sure we throw some of those in with those grits and get them up to you because I, I have a feeling you'll figure it out real quick. And it ain't cream of wheat. You'll yeah. never touch that stuff again. You want yeah. grits? So I'll tell you this: this, this is the worst part about it that that I think uh, with the invention of the instant grit is that it really doesn't take that long to make grit. There's not a huge time difference in making regular grits versus instant grits, but there's a big difference in flavor. Mm. It takes a little more love to make normal grits, like regular grits, instant grits, throw them in the microwave. No. I think they're just taking the grit and just ground it finer. Yeah. And you need a little little more grit body to (laughs) it. Right. Pretty much. (laughs) Otherwise, you're you're approaching wallpaper paste. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I was telling Jim I accidentally uh, like I wanted some grits. You can't find them up here at all, so I ordered some online and I got a, several pounds, and then they were all instant grits, which I hadn't meant to order. So I've been making my way slowly through pounds of instant grits. So <laughs> nice to get some decent stuff. But it's funny because that southern food is actually like for me up here, it's almost like a whole different culinary region, like like Lebanese food or or. or South African food, like that whole Southern food thing, it's its own cuisine. And I've been kind of tickling at the borders a little bit, experimenting with things. And, and I've just been loving everything I've done with it. But I haven't had the chance too much to actually experience the actual food. Um, I've been down in Kentucky and Tennessee, so I've kind of been touching the borders of it. But yeah, I haven't really got to fully experience it. So that's, that's on my to-do list for sure. Let's see. Oh, so you're still inside the Mason Dixon there. Yeah. But here, here's the thing. Close. Here's the thing about Tennessee, though, right? And this is something I discovered living up there is even if you go to it's in that, that's when it comes to, to barbecue, where you get barbecue. Mm. Barbecue in Tennessee, vastly different from barbecue further south or farther east or to the west a little bit. And it's all in how they make their sauce. I remember the first time I had barbecue in Tennessee, and they're like, You want barbecue sauce? I said, yeah, you got sweet sauce? They looked at me like I was crazy. Yeah. All the sauce is vinegar-based. Never had vinegar-based barbecue sauce in my life. But I learned to love it. And it's just another a, a difference in, in the, the culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so southern cooking is not... Um, it, what's the word I'm looking for? 
It's not the entire southeast. Yeah. It it, it almost goes from state. Uh, so it probably state. Yeah. State to state. Because I yeah. know even some places here in Florida, if you ask for like, you go to a barbecue joint, and you're like, you got any mustard sauce? People are like, what? Yeah. Oh, so like, North Carolina barbecue. Mustard sauce. All right. They got <laughs> mustard sauce. But mm-hmm. that chopped up garbage that they put on stuff that I, I forget what the heck they call it, man. Dude, look, I think North Carolinians will disagree, but everybody else in the South will basically say that North Carolina is exempt. They really don't have barbecue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, even because Georgia is different from Alabama, Florida is like a combination of everything. A lot, a lot of citrus sometimes. Yeah. Um, mm. Texas, Texas just has the best of thing. everything. Yeah. Texas is a whole different deal. Louisiana I've been down to Texas especially. and tried some barbecue there. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. And Louisiana's yeah. got the French, so that might be pretty close to, to home for you. Um, is yeah, because all the French, the Acadians came, the Acadians came from the Acadians, which can, mm-hmm. came yes. from Canada, so there's some connection there. Yeah. Uh, but even then, they add their own flair to it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's 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 a it's a culture of its own. And it varies from state to state throughout the South, but they're all they're, the one thing they all have in common is a lot of it's fried. Yeah. <laughs> well, that, yeah, because it's easy, but right. there's a lot of, especially we talked about it, the things that are done with the beans. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, we already kind of covered a lot of that last time we were yammering, but um, the, what's really important here is I think you mentioned earlier that you have not successfully killed a deer. And it sounds like you have a hole in your repertoire with regards to Southern cooking. But you must not be too far from an airport. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's COVID slowed it down a little bit, but uh, I'm planning on making it down to Florida soon and hopefully traveling through everywhere else in the South and, and filling in those holes. Uh, in terms of deer, I can butcher deer. So I do a lot of butchering for, for friends and neighbors, and I end up with a fair amount of venison that way. Um, so I've been still able to cook with it quite a bit, but, uh, just haven't brought in any of my own yet. So, well, if you don't, if you don't successfully knock down a deer this year, let's stay in touch in one way, shape or form. I'm, but I'm always hesitant to make promises, but with this crew here, I'm relatively certain that one way or another, we, we, we will put you on a deer next season. Right. And, uh, let's drag one home that you've knocked down yourself. It might not be the, uh. It, we, it's not and when we hunt down here there's not a lot of stalking because you can't <laughs> yeah it's illegal it's too thick no, no it's, it's not illegal, illegal. it's it's no, physically you can't i mean <laughs> yeah. well you could it's just everything's gonna hear you coming from a mile away as you're going ow damn what, the, what was that you know so. <laughs> i like the sounds of that you walk through down. the woods in the south and you, and you do a lot of that <clears throat> and no reference to my name briar but there's a lot of briars yeah. and they're not fun <laughs> I was going to say earlier, like coming back to cooking, that mm-hmm. the nice thing is about no matter where you go or how it's cooked or whatever it is, just like hunting, food is one of those things that brings people together, right? You can always guarantee that if there's food there and there's people that everybody's going to sit down, have a good time, uh, talk. I mean, it's just a great way to get people together. Yeah, it's it's kind of... The more I hunt and cook and, and do all these different things in my life, I find they're all just kind of combining it, combining into one thing. And and that's living vibrantly and 
colorfully and being with lots of people and, and enjoying each other's company and, and having experiences together, right? Whether we're hunting or, or just outdoors or fishing or cooking or eating or barbecuing, whatever, it's it's kind of all the same thing. And it, and I'm as I grow a little older, I'm still young yet, but I'm starting to realize that it's all kind of coming into the same point that all the things I want out of life are the pretty much exact same, even though they all seem very different. Yeah. I'll say, you know, some of the best memories I've made through pretty much anything you've done wouldn't be like your harvest or how you prepared your food or it's the company and the moments that you had with those people, you know, during and after that. Exactly. Like when I'm on my own, um, you know, if, if my partner is off on a work trip or something, I end up eating chips and sandwiches. Um, so <laughs> without, without company, like the, my enthusiasm just, just disappears. Um, and, and I can't drum up that like ambition to cook good food. So I, I need people around and, and the more people, the better. You know, it doesn't seem like she, you know, your partner's gone very often because your sheer volume of what you crank out is amazing. Cause the things that you're doing are also relatively time consuming. Are you using a method where you're thinking well in advance of what you want and you're doing some of the preparation um, a few days in advance so that we're all putting it together? Or do you just just cook throughout the day while you're doing the rest of your your career and whatnot so that it all comes together in the end? Yeah, more the latter. I think sometimes I get, I get things to kind of stuck in my head and then I get thinking about certain cuisines. I usually do a whole bunch of Middle Eastern and a whole bunch of Asian and a whole bunch of whatever like that kind of get into themes but uh yeah generally I, I wake up in the morning and and do my blog posts and everything and get some work done plug some recipes into the my website and then I start thinking about what I want to cook and like today I had no idea what I wanted to cook until maybe noon or one in the afternoon and then I kind of got the idea and I, and I cooked, ended up cooking this huge Spanish feast <laughs> out of wow. nowhere. So a, a large part of it is just having the a ridiculous pantry so I am able to cook whatever I feel like at any point in time. Uh, so I have a, you know, those cartoons where you open a closet door and the entire thing falls out on you and crushes you. Yeah. That's like every one of my cupboards in my freezer and <laughs> <laughs> So I'm just well prepared to kind of cook off the, on the fly with like whatever, whatever I'm feeling for the day. So I like doing it that way. So to say you got into hunting and fishing as well as uh, your culinary ventures in a non-traditional way is, is no far stretch, but how has that helped you shed some of the less than helpful traditions in wild game cooking? It keeps, uh, keeps everything much fresher, you know, like, I'm able to approach something with with a clear mind without, you know, old grandpa saying, oh, that tastes like crap. You don't want to eat that or that's not worth eating or you only eat it this way or, um, you know, I, I did miss out on, on a lot of that mentorship that comes with generational hunting families and all the information that gets passed along to that, which is super valuable. But I also missed out on all the nonsense that comes with that too, because uh, 
no matter how smart your grandpa is, he probably has some odd views on, on food or what's edible or whatever. So I think coming at it with no experience, I can decide for myself if it tastes like crap or not. Um, there's never a point where, you know, I, I talked to all these guys and, oh, Canada goose tastes like crap. Like, oh, yeah, you had it before? No. <laughs> well, then how could you possibly know? <laughs> I don't uh, know. I think you know that we, I mean, I eat a fair amount of goose. Um, I don't know how people got there. The only thing I can assume is they've overcooked it or perhaps it was shot and plucked a goose and then looked up um, a recipe for a, you know, a farm raised goose, which is going to have an enormous amount more fat and have had a different diet and then tried to cook a, a wild goose in the same way. And what they pulled out of the oven resembled shoe leather. I, I can see that. Exactly. But when you yeah. render the fat, oh, it's fantastic. And medium rare. Well, these guys have had it. And I think I'm embarrassed to admit that despite, Dozens of geese, dozens and dozens of geese haven't gone down the gullet. I never confit anything until this year. Um, it's life-changing. <laughs> that should be the first thing. We should be teaching like four-year-old children how to confit. Mm. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so when you're hunting the geese, are you hunting them over water? Do you have access to fields? Um, how about How do you go about it? So we have access to a single farm field that goes from soybeans to corn back and forth every year. Um, and we just, I have, uh, you know, that camo burlap kind of stuff. I do. I, uh, I zip tied it to two T-posts and we just show up there and pound the T-posts in on the, uh, there's a couple trees on the edge of the field, tuck ourselves in there and put out a couple decoys and and get the goose down, geese down. So that's how we've been doing it. We've been pretty successful that way so far. From the um, wood line? Yeah, just from the wood line. They, they get pretty nervous coming close to that, but if we can get them kind of right in the perfect spot, they, uh, yes, we can limit out sometimes. Um, we, we can do five geese a day here. So, Is that per yeah, person? We brought down, yeah, per person. Wow. Sounds like yeah. you get along quite well with the same way we waterfowl hunt. It's just kind of grab a bunch of palm fronds on a makeshift boat blind and strength. I mean, the boat blinds held up with zip ties and screwdrivers <laughs> to keep the X on the hey, on the boat, hey, you know, to keep it next. Yeah. Keep, your keep high dollar. Go ahead and keep it out of here. Out of somewhere yeah. else. But, uh, <laughs> and then stuff palm fronds all around in there and, and blind up in the reeds and just go for it. Briar, he went and got a high dollar on us and got it, got himself a beaver tail blind for his boat. Um, I, like I would love to put palm fronds on my boat and cruise down the lake and just see what people think up here. <laughs> 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 Would you be able to find a palm from up in Canada? I, maybe inside. I'd have to rob everyone's house. <laughs> I'd mill you some if they didn't get brown so fast. <laughs> so do do guys hunt in um, either coffin blinds or, or just one of the most common things, especially see out west because they have snow geese, is you'll see guys putting on white painter suits. And then surrounding themselves with snow geese, putting Canada's on the outside of that, laying up underneath the snow geese, uh, the snow geese decoys and, or socks. What, what do you see in Canada? You mentioned that you're hunting from the wood line, which I thought was, that's got to be more comfortable sitting on a bucket as opposed to laying on cold, frozen ground. But what what else do you see done up there for, for attracting geese? Yeah, we, we do get people shooting them on the water. And um, there's a, 
snow goose flyways like a couple hours away from me and and a lot of the guys do that um i hear a lot of a lot of guys do layup lines they don't seem to be that much more successful than than we are with our little ten dollar setup so it's it stopped me from buying all that gear because i've just been relatively successful so far with it but i think a lot of guys use the layup lines if it ain't broke don't fix it yeah exactly just how easy is it to get a shotgun into canada (laughs) (laughs) we got a lot of americans come up here to to hunt but i think it you have to go through the um you have to get through outfitters and, and guides and everything to do it but um when COVID hit, there was a massive um, hit to the to the outfitting industry in Canada because so many Americans come over to hunt that it was uh, they were they were trying to get Canadians to use outfitters and I don't think many were interested. But yeah, COVID, yeah, COVID had quite an impact on your your outfitting industry up there, and it's a it's a shame. Yeah. I mean, it had quite a bit impact on the on industry period, but everything, yeah. <laughs> It, uh, my understanding is it, it really hurt the, the guiding industry in Canada because, like you said, they are largely dependent on Americans coming across the border to hunt bear, moose, yeah, know, waterfowl, you name it. And that just, uh, cross border traffic wasn't happening. Uh, so, you know, I think that really forced a lot of people, you know, it, it, like it sucks on the guiding industry, but if you think it really probably forced a lot of people to go out there and try to, actually learn or, or do more on their own rather than kind of rely on it's true. somebody else. It seemed like there was more hunting going on altogether. And maybe that was a lot more just hunting at home rather than spending all your money on a big trip up North. Yeah. And just kind of hunting your local, local woods. Oh yeah. A lot of States down here this year saw, uh, Turkey harvest and, and license sales skyrocket in the spring of, mm-hmm. of 2020 because of COVID. I would, say I, I, kn- I would say I know at least in Florida, boat sales went through the route. Literally everybody owns a boat now. Yeah. Yeah. Same in Canada. You couldn't find a boat if it's, if you wanted to. It was craziness. <laughs> I mean, you can find a boat now, but you're going to pay a lot more for it. Mm-hmm. I-, I loved it though. Here's a few thousand dollars to get you through these tough times. Boats. Right to the gun <laughs> store, the boat store, the fishing pole <laughs> store. Like, yeah. Uh, who actually spent that stuff on food? I don't know anybody. Well, in a way, well, I guess technically, uh, yeah. 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 <laughs> technically, I mean, yeah. If you want to get like really, really technical about it, the most expensive groceries. I in bought your a pantry. dog kennel. <laughs> <laughs> so, but all right, we're talking about outfitters. We're talking about changes, and I think you mentioned earlier in the podcast that you've only been actively hunting for about two years. Um, so, but. And if you don't know this, it's okay. I'm taking a stab in the dark. What's going on with the caribou up there? Because when I was younger, there was a lot of guys going to Ontario um, or Eastern Canada to chase caribou. And as I understand, there's something has gone amiss with the herd. Do you know anything about that? I've just been hearing about this. Actually, there's some guys on the grouse hunt I did last week. Um, they were talking about it because that was kind of the area where they were planning on maybe introducing woodland caribou. But um I don't know enough about it to, to speak intelligently on the matter, uh, but I do know that the the um, government is trying to take measures to save the woodland caribou um, from extirpation or extinction, and 
that is about all I know about it. So th- th- there's plans, there's action plans, there's things happening, but I'm, I'm not really sure much more than that. Wow, it's that bad, huh? Because wow. yeah. I and I, I know sort of, I haven't looked into it all, but I would be really surprised to find out if they were overhunted. That just doesn't seem to jive. Like, we, I think it's more logging logging practices that are like, um, habitat changes, huh? Yeah, okay. yeah, and migration route blockages which i think really affects them as well um because they've had these same migration routes for thousands of years and then they find them changed suddenly and that really disrupts their their life cycles so i think it'd be more that than the actual hunting pressure oh, i hope they figure it out because uh, what a yeah. what an amazing animal yeah over hunting is is not really something you see as a, a cause anymore these days in in countries that have game laws yeah uh, especially mm. since we quit uh, outlawed market hunting right. yeah, a century ago. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. in, in North America, in, in particularly the United States, I think anybody that looks at it can make a really strong argument that the reason we have had such a recovery of game species, especially the umbrella species that then help all the species underneath them is, is directly because of hunting. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, I, I certainly hope that I don't know how things are done in Canada. We sometimes think is, of it as almost being a homogenous North American culture, but it is, you know, it's its own separate country, same value, separate values. But I, I certainly hope that uh, it's the sportsman leading the charge up there too. We'll, we'll see. Yeah. It's a, it's pretty similar. I think uh U.S. and Canada has been working hand in hand for, for a long time to, to manage um, hunting and, and wildlife and habitat in a similar way. Um, we do have some differences up here, but not many. More more differences in terms of um, maybe some of the hunting culture and some of the the gun laws. Um, but in terms of of species protection, I think we're basically on board with the same thing. I was actually looking at some stats to see the the similarities and differences in Canada and the states. I read there is 5.7 million hunters in Canada and 15 million hunters in the U.S., uh, which means 15% of Canadians hunt as opposed to 5% of Americans, which is an interesting interesting stat. I feel there's much more of a visible hunting culture in the States, uh, but there's apparently more actual hunters in in Canada per, per, um, per capita, which is kind of interesting to me. I don't find it surprising, though. I think there's well, what percentage of the population lives within an hour of the of, of the American and Canadian border? Is it some like really like ninety five percent probably? Yeah, yeah. But, so, but it's not that far, and you're out. You're out in the woods. Where, yeah, that's true. Yeah, in the United States, sometimes we have to travel fairly extensively to get. I mean, there's woods, but if you want to get out into the like, Canadian style wilderness. Very few places exist like that here. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, there, there's places in Canada where you could literally walk for a month and, and still not see civilization. Pick one direction and go. And yeah. you're still in the woods. Uh, that just... I, I'm not sure you could do that here. We don't have... Play, well, unless you're talking about Alaska. In, in the contiguous 48 states. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know that you could, you could walk one direction for a month and, and not find a road or a town or... 
and, and that's you know like we talked about earlier that that's one of the big reasons we see a lot of the the issues with uh, game animals and, and other animals is, is habitat loss. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, we we got to keep working on that type of stuff. You know, and I don't, I don't know if it's the same in Canada, but I feel like there's so many people in the U.S. that just feel like it's some crazy expensive unachievable goal to go hunting but there really is you know and especially in florida there's so much public land you you don't have to own property or you don't have to have permission as long as you can get yourself you know a legally usable weapon you can get out there and hunt you can win your sport and get out there and hunt but i can't tell you how many people i come across and like oh man it's just way too expensive to hunt i'm like no i mean you know, the, really, it's not if you're going to go hunt public land, other than getting your 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 weapon. The hunting public on YouTube just dropped a YouTube video the other day where they uh, went out and killed a big old doe with a fifty dollar bow they bought on eBay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just a matter of taking the time to get yourself out there. Because yes, that's public true. Public land's easily accessible, at least in Florida, especially to hunt small game. Yeah, oh, we got. 400,000 acres, you know, 15 minutes from us. Yeah. It's not that. I mean, it's not that close to everybody, but there is quite a bit here. Yeah, but you can get up on a Saturday morning and drive an hour. Yeah, even like. To go still hunting. Even if you lived in Orlando. It's not unreasonable to do. There's several. I mean, you don't have to come north to Ocala if you lived in Orlando. I mean, you can go south and hit Kissimmee and there's several WMAs down that way. Well, it's not even all about hunting. It's about fishing, too. Now, in yeah. the state of Florida, there's water everywhere. Everywhere. Yeah. I mean, we live in Lake yeah. County. People, I don't have a boat. Fish from the shore. Mm-hmm. Yep. You need a... And the a, same same goes for any wild food, really. Like, um, one of my the messages I try to put out there is if you're, if you're foraging, you don't have to go to the deep woods to find these things. In fact, you'll find way more on the, on the edges of... of disturb sites and in your own backyard half the mushrooms i find are growing in the like literally through the gravel and on my road um if you if you open your mind and start looking from other species there's squirrels everywhere you can eat squirrel just fine they're they're really tasty um you know like if you don't it's not all about like going up into the wilderness and shooting a moose it's there's wild food everywhere you can fish on the shore. You can hunt small game. You can you can pick um, pick wild greens or berries or mushrooms like right in your backyard. It's uh, it, it's accessible, actually accessible to everyone. You just have to learn how to do it. I think. Jordan, when you mentioned that people are commenting about how expensive hunting is to start, do you think that's because they think, well, you can't hunt if you don't have a lease, or do you think that's because they're they're thinking about starting out with you know, doll sheep or, or caribou or, or, or moose. No. Or, or do you think it's just that they, they think in general that. I think just your average person kind of assumes that like if you, you have to have, you have to go somewhere and buy a brand new gun and you got to go to Academy or Bass Pro or something and buy a brand new camo. No, I, I don't think people go straight to assuming I can go to Al's Army Navy and get some. You know, it doesn't have to be something expensive. I can go. I can go to a surplus store and get some old military camo, or I can find some at a yard sale. I can find a bow at a yard sale, or I can find fishing poles at a yard sale. 
I think people just assume that you have to go to these big box stores to get your equipment to do that. I think that television and the the hunting shows on television have have made hunting seem extremely expensive. I think yeah, that has a lot. To absolutely, do with it. Mm-hmm. they think if you're going to deer hunt, you have to have the lease. You have to have you know the scent blocker clothes well, uh, and right. Drake and because you don't ever see Walmart brand camo advertised on the Outdoor Channel. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, you know it's it's the the best and the, the most expensive. And we're mentioning camouflage. Do people in Canada wear camo? Yeah. Um, <laughs> depending on what you're hunting for. Uh, and we get the same kind of shows up here too. So a lot of people are come decked out in full full crazy camo with all the gear. Some people like buying gear more than they actually like hunting, I think. Uh, <laughs> oh, no doubt. I think everywhere. <laughs> well, but uh, th- there are some shows and some... Like I'm seeing more, and I'm really gravitating towards it. There's these guys in Alberta called running a show called uh, From the Wild, and you know they're not decked out in camo, and they're they're getting all sorts of stuff. You got Hank Shaw, even the Meteor guys aren't so hardcore about it. Um, and kind of the Canadian old school here, you just you know guys in a plaid shirt and and jeans are probably just as successful as some of the camo guys. But there you go. But sometimes when you're hunting ducks in the marsh you need a little more you need to hide yourself a little better so there's times where where i really camo up and there's other times where i just put on a green shirt and that's probably fine that's where i was going is that we talked about camo and all the gear yeah and almost anybody that wants to get into hunting in the united states already has all the clothes they need in their closet yeah and none of them camo that's a big lie like most dog hunters that I know wear blue jeans and a long sleeve blaze on shirt and a hat. That's because the deer's like sprinting past them. Not- <laughs> I mean, different. <laughs> it's not he like, oh about my the God. Hat. Slightly different story, but you know. So to quote easily one of the greatest hunters of all time, Fred Bear, the best camouflage is to sit still and be quiet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I'll say all, you know, bow season or a uh, muzzle loader, I wore a camo shirt and like, tan pants i mean <laughs> it's all the time when i thought about it, i was like man i can't find my camo pants and then the first thing i thought of was steve ranella like i have walking somewhere hunting and he had a pair of like green or tan pants on i was like well if steve can do it i can do it so <laughs> i've even duck hunted several times with just green pants shorts yeah <laughs> Yeah, well, you don't have much of a choice sometimes down here, but to hunt shorts. <laughs> I mean, Jim had flip flops on in the early season. Yep, I've killed deer in flip flops. I've killed them in wingtips, sneakers, of course, boots. Yeah, wing so tips. khaki that's, pants, collared shirt. Oh yeah, you're running late to the stand, right in there. I gotta ask. You know, we're talking about like the difference between Canada and the U.S. And is everybody yeah. in Canada like as nice as they make it seem in TV? Um. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Probably not. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say they make it seem like Canadians are just so friendly and nice. I mean, nice. I heard a rumor that the reason Canada geese are so mean is because Canadians take all their rage, put them into the geese, and send them south. <laughs> Honestly, I, I've spent some time in the States, and everywhere I've gone, I've encountered really nice people. And I've been to some place in Canada where there's nothing but a bunch of a-holes. So <laughs> I don't know how true it is 
Um, but maybe we're just more polite and that might be mistaken for kindness. Um, <laughs> if we're not so abrupt, if we're a little quieter and, and more polite, people might think we're kinder, but it might just be that we're, we're uh, grinning on the outside and snarling on the inside. Who knows? I'm going to say they at least birthed us with letter Kenny. So yeah. Enter the park, boys. <laughs> yeah. Oh. <laughs> So of all these great adventures you had in getting into hunting, where, where are you headed from here? Well, I'd like to just try to hunt for everything. I Because I'm attacking it from a food angle, I really want to try all of it. So I'm not the type of guy who's just going to be happy with deer hunting. Like I need, I need to try bear and moose and elk and squirrel and I need to go down and gig for frogs or you guys are in gators and nutria who knows like <laughs> i just want to try all of it and i want to bring it all back into the kitchen uh so i feel like that's going to bring me on a lot of adventures in the future uh, hopefully you know the more awesome people like you guys i meet the more connections i make the more possibility for for getting around trying out new things and uh hopefully exposing other people to to my side of things as well um my my goal my my kind of close goal is to to write a book because uh, I really really enjoy writing and I'd love to write a book on on wild food so so hopefully that can happen soonish. Uh, so I I'll tell you if you come down here we we can definitely take you to gig frogs in a traditional in a very non traditional way. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was gonna say is like you know we're gonna bring him down here and he's you know if you if you're thinking. You're going to see some refined. Don't bring a camera. <laughs> you know, no, I guarantee uh, you it would, it would make for good content. I guarantee you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it's, uh, it starts out with, what do you want to do? Let's go see if there's some frogs. And usually some form of chaos that uh, it's not working. And then all of a sudden, somehow you stumble onto something that is working, but it wasn't what we did last time. And, and say, somehow can, there's some frogs in the sack. Yeah. I can guarantee you that I would rather you just let me hang over the front of the boat and snatch them out of the water than put a gig pole in my hand. Yep. <laughs> well, I'm thinking more along the lines of, of, of shooting them with a bow and arrow. Yeah. Not like a bow fishing <laughs> bow and arrow, but like a traditional <laughs> archery equipment out of the, out of a the, like a deep ditch. Uh, we did that quite a bit in our younger days, and we still have access to get some of that stuff done, but. And it's, that right there is an absolute blast. Maybe if we can't, it that way. can't get him on an alligator hunt, we can get him some meat. Absolutely. The boys at Heartland Precision Rifle the other day when we were at the Ducks Unlimited Banquet happened to mention they had some big old fat frogs just waiting for you, you know, for uh, whether it's gigging or, or whacking them with a bow. So you might want to reach back out to Zach. Absolutely. that for you. Yeah. So tell us, uh, tell us your favorite hunting or fishing story thus far uh there hasn't been all too many exciting ones but uh i can think of in in the spring i went for a bear hunt um a neighbor of mine has a has a hunting camp kind of nearby and he said well every time he goes turkey hunting in the spring he sees these bears they're always moving through because there's a series of lakes that kind of funnels them through this one area so he said without without baiting that's probably your best bet at getting a bear so uh so I got up in this tree stand and and 
my buddy got into another tree stand and we sat out there for, I don't know, some god awful amount of time. I think eight hours up there or something and didn't see anything. <laughs> and uh, then a neighbor ended up showing up and we had, you know, a big bonfire at night and had some drinks and I made a big meal and uh, the plate of food got left out overnight <laughs> outside. And, uh, you know, I got up in the early in the morning with like a killer hangover, but, you know, I got my hunting gear on. I'm like, I'm going to do this. This is my one and only chance at spring to, to get a bear. And, uh, groggily walk outside and look and the freaking plate of food is still sitting there untouched so there's no bears here. <laughs> well the boots off went right back to bed <laughs> so that was that was the extent of my bear hunt for the spring <laughs> uh yeah but i haven't uh, had any too many other big exciting stories yet but uh i'm hoping to start building those up as time goes on so <clears throat> do you have a, a funny story from for us from the field or the kitchen or both? I have a, like, I've always been kind of known as the guy, like as a, the cook and out of all my friends, whatever. Um, and I've developed some, some kind of legends surrounding that. Um, there's a time in college where we were having a party at a friend's parents' house and we're on the hot tub having drinks and whatever. And the conversation kind of wrapped around to um, deviled eggs and how everyone loves them so much and, and would, you know, kill a man for a deviled egg right now kind of thing. So I uh, quietly excused myself to go to the to the bathroom, whatever, and uh, broke into my buddy's parents' kitchen and, and whipped up a big plate of deviled eggs and showed back up in 15 minutes with a big plate of deviled eggs to the hot tub <laughs> and uh Thanks. blew everyone's minds and uh so there's you know a year or two later we were all in a hot tub and the story came up again oh i remember that time and i quietly slipped away it was a different house and broke into that kitchen and made a big mess of, of deviled eggs again out of their <laughs> kitchen <laughs> now i think whenever we get in a hot tub people are like so uh you're gonna make deviled eggs or what yeah. <laughs> i was gonna say I was gonna say deviled eggs wouldn't necessarily something I'm sitting in a hot tub of going, man, I could use some deviled eggs right now. Yeah, <laughs> Depends how many beers you had, I guess. I'm not. I'm not gonna <laughs> yeah. lie. I'm not gonna lie. If you, if I was in a hot tub and you brought me deviled eggs, I would still eat the deviled eggs. I would say there was no point sure. where I would not eat deviled eggs if they're brought to me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you're also not sitting in twelve degrees yeah. in a hot tub. Yeah, yeah. Right. that's true. Patricia, my fu- one of the weirdest stories I have from Canada. We were in Banff, and I came out, and man, it was cold. We were going to go skiing, and I asked the guy at the hotel door. I said, "Man, it's uh, it's chilly out here. What what temperature is it?" He looks at me. He says, "Well, it's it's twelve. and I said. It's not even freezing because we're from Florida. And he goes, oh, sorry. I thought you were a Yank. That's Fahrenheit. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're saying you, you went deer hunting in flip-flops. The other one time, I think uh, to, my first deer hunt, it was uh, minus eight Fahrenheit. Uh, so it was, it was, there's no flip-flops <laughs> happening there. <laughs> It was, it was freezing cold. Nope. 
I've never deer hunted in flip flops, but I have deer hunted in an ankle cast. Yeah. You got to do what you got to do. Yeah. It was, it was spray painted camouflage though. So it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> so Adam, at the end of every episode, we like to do a, a tip of the week and, and, uh, I'll go ahead and start us off and say that just because you've tried a wild game dish or a, a, a an animal and you're like, man, that tastes disgusting. Learn how to cook it a different way or a better way or have someone cook it a better way for you and try it again because there's been stuff that Jim has cooked that there's no way, like crow. That's always the first thing that comes to mind when I have the crow that you made, Jim, that I never in a million years would have thought – Man, that that dang blackbird right there that's just eating in the garbage, he I bet he tastes delicious. <laughs> but it, it was absolutely wonderful. And it, it's all in, in how you cook it. I'll I'll give you another example of that. Um, what did you, you you made I can't remember what you called it, but it was basically garfish that he made crab cake out of. Oh yeah. I can't remember what yeah. you called that dish. Um It was the garballs. Yeah, basically garballs. Boulets, yeah. Boulets, that's yeah. It. Um, I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that right, but, uh, it's, it's, you're very close. That's, a, that's pretty much what it is. And, yeah. uh, you know, we got the guy that's way more the master than I am here. It's a lot of times realizing that you're, you're not going to turn a certain piece of meat or a certain game species, you're not going to make it a filet mignon. It's yeah. just not going to happen. But what can you do? Does it require a little bit more? Does it require a brine? Um, does it require buttermilk, some acidity? Um, to do, do you need to tenderize it mechanically? And then what can you bind it with? Or does it need to be ground? Right? Um, I, oh, man, I can't remember what it was. You did something, Adam, if I'm not mistaken, that I have not cooked because I haven't had a carp. But you did something, if I'm not mistaken, that was amazing with carp. I, I, I'm pretty sure it was you. I was looking through your site. Did, did you not make a... Um, not yet. I, I tried to catch a carp this this summer. I wasn't able to, so it wasn't me. I don't think. But you, you've, I did, I did I'm doing a total with, disservice, like, but I know you've done some <laughs> amazing dishes with fish that a lot of folks would just. Nope, nope. It's not walleye. It's going back in. You know, and you yeah. you've crushed it. So. Yeah, pike, pike for sure. A lot of people throw pike back, but I, they're such a delicious fish. If you just do a little extra work, they're incredible you get three fillets instead of two yeah, yeah. <laughs> i feel like too even with some ducks we kill like you get merganders and people like oh they taste like trash man Extra we soaked them in buttermilk for like a week or something <laughs> and then do them on poppers they're great yeah poppers yeah mm-hmm. but shoot even that one time we ate a possum we didn't even put okay. That wasn't yeah. really good. We didn't even put any seasoning or anything on it, but it wasn't terrible. It wasn't like something I mean, you, you could spit eat back it. out and go. Ugh. It's something like, it. all right, cool. I can stomach this. Yeah, <laughs> it's not a way I would cook possum again. Yeah, I don't think I would make the fire the same way I did it at the least. You With, know. Yeah. <laughs> you know what we got to do? We got to get Adam down here and go out and schwack an armadillo. I'm, I'm out. Man, see, see what I he can do with possum on a half shell. The only thing, the only I reason I haven't leprosy. messed with armadillo is because of leprosy. That's curable. Well, that's curable. Work okay. with blood. Cool. That's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Probably ought to get to the tip of the week before this gets out of hand. Yeah. 
Who's next? Man, you stole mine, so you're going to have to let me think. I'm going to say it's not related to hunting, but I'm going to say, uh, based off my last weekend's experiences, that um, do not trust your gas gauge because my truck runs out of gas at a quarter tank. And it's a diesel, so it was extremely hard to get cranked back up after it ran out of gas. Fill up before you get to a quarter tank. I guess you can say the same thing about the boat because you haven't run out of gas on your boat, too. Yeah, but that was William's fault. He didn't check it. No. We asked you at the gas station that morning, Jordan, should we fill up the boat? Oh, no, I got plenty. Nobody asked me about fuel yes, that we morning. Did. Both of us asked. No, I don't believe it. And that. said, are you sure? And you're like, ah, no, we ain't going that far. I didn't hear it. I was still half asleep. <laughs> Brad, what you got? Uh, mine is, you know, if, if somebody asked or, or wants to go out fishing or hunting, take them. Like uh, this weekend, I'm actually taking a father and son gator hunting. It'll be both of them their first time gator hunting. The blind leading the blind. Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> Literally. Jim, what do you got? Read. You know, in this country, we spend an inordinate amount of cash making you literate. Um, and that was supposed to go beyond cruising through Facebook or Instagram. How cheap is that right now? It's all Instagram and TikTok. Now you ain't even got to read. They just, they just talk to you. No. Go get the book with the spine and delve it. Whether it be in Florida history, whether it be on how to cook, um, whether it be something in economics, um, I think, I, not to make this into a rant, but I really think that's one of the things, I think we're making dumber people. Despite the fact we have more access to information than at any time in human, human history, we, we, we seem to have... A lot of people that are they're not erudite they're, and they're just and they're just not trying. It's like they, it's too easy to find the easy answer, but the easy answer doesn't give you the background, the substance, and the knowledge that is required to apply that answer appropriately. I don't know if I'm doing a good job of describing that. So that that sounds like that's my goofy, dark, nebulous tip of the week today is <laughs> go go use your library card or Amazon something in your house. But damn man. Read something. Read it and send us something online that says, look what I read today. You guys are wrong because you took the easy route. Happy to say I was wrong. Absolutely. All right, Adam, impart some knowledge on us. <laughs> well, I'll take uh, – I'll go on the same bean, zoom a little bit, and, and deal with books. Um, you know, I think when people are looking to cook wild game and they want to expand their culinary knowledge about it, they, they tend to go for – these old wild game books that have been kicking around for years. Um, and they generally, most of the game wild game books is page after page of, you know, cooking and bacon fat, put whatever sauce on, cook this and bacon fat, put whatever sauce on it. And, and that's all good stuff and tasty. But if you really want to expand, you should be, you know, getting, try getting cookbooks from, from other cultures. There's all these beautiful cookbooks from some, from West Africa like Nigeria from, from the middle East, from Georgia uh, and in Thailand and every, everything like that and go through them and just swap out the meat in it for wild game. Um, so like lamb dishes, venison is a shoe in for lamb uh, chicken. You could do grouse uh, turkey and turkey work great together. So like just go through. And- <laughs> it's the same bird. <laughs> Yeah, it's not that hard. So just go through it and, and and you'll find that your 
your culinary repertoire with wild game will just grow exponentially and you'll have better, healthier, more vibrant dishes that, that are out of this world, delicious, beautiful. And, you know, so, you know, put down the old, like, it's good to have those old books. It's good to reference them, but grab some new books too. And, and, and really get a sense of what's happening in the rest of the world. And you'll be able to slide in wild game into those recipes and you, and you won't regret it. That's, that's my tip. That's a really good tip. Cause I, I've been fortunate enough to meet and make friends with some people that are from some vastly different cultures. And I've been able to eat with them and it's like, wow, how have I never experienced this before? Because this is amazing. Winter Park is really not a separate culture. I know they're a lot different yeah. than us. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's like I used to work at a, a sports complex uh, in high school. And every year we had like a big, I don't want to, I guess it was like an Indian, they had like an Indian kite festival. And like I went over there and granted it was kind of weird because they had all of their foods just sitting like out in Gatorade coolers, but no lid. They were just kind of out hanging. And then they were like, oh, get food, get food, get food. And I'm like, nah, I don't know about this stuff. Because, you know, you walk into a gas station around here and it smells like curry. And you're like, mm. Dude, you're missing out. But, mm. but I, then I Try ate, that gas station curry. Yeah. It'll blow your mind. But then I ate a bunch of their food. And I was like, this is amazing. Yeah. Like, oh, my God. I could gorge myself on it. Yeah, like a venison biryani. Now you're talking... You can you can just slip all that wild game into that food and and just it'll blow your mind. It's, it's good stuff. Well, we've got your. We're starting to show more stuff. Well, at least I am because I'm fascinated by the work you do from Intrepid Eater and whatnot. Um, but I, I think you guys correct me if I'm wrong, but you would have no problem if um, if Adam just started blazing away on our page with some of his oh, creations, absolutely. right? Like, yeah, please inspire all, yeah. some folks, man. Share your yeah. stuff. Link your page. Yeah. Drive more traffic there. Um, yeah, for sure. Well, yeah. I will do that. I never want to overstep my bounds with this kind of thing, but yeah, if no, you got, got the invitation, I'll just spam your your page for the rest of the time. So no, no, no naked yeah. chef, and we should be good. <laughs> you you yeah. join Under Pressure Outdoors Nation just like everybody else is listening should, and and you feel free to post all your food there, your success stories, your failures, lessons learned. That's what it's there for. So it's it's Sounds for everybody good. to grow and learn together. Yeah. So. Adam, I, I really appreciate you joining us this week, and I, I look forward to hopefully getting to meet you when you make your your long journey south. We'll put you on some frogs and hopefully some and alligators some for the times, food. right? Yeah, more hens. More hens. I've I've tentative plans to be in Florida in, in March, so that could be a, a distinct reality. Um, no gator. So. <laughs> uh, we might be fishing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right frogs. at the close of small season. Yeah. Frogs, it is. Just, frogs. Yeah, just we to meet can, you guys. So. We can at least put you on some gator meat and stuff like that. But Yeah, we'll get you some yeah. gator meat. Yeah, you know, and that's not the only time I need to be down. So, Let us know when you're coming down. Um, yeah. I've been noodling with the idea of doing some kind of wild game dinner uh, as a thank you to people that we just, I mean, there we have some folks in our lives, man, they show up all the time no matter and some of them no matter how, the harder the work the more they're there um and, and i'm not trying to put on you don't have to cook though of course i'm going to ask you anyway but you can say no <laughs> but um if you let us know when you come down there i would love to try to organize something i mean not not for 50 people but something kind of intimate mm. love to have you over to our house 
Um, I'll invite all these knuckleheads and, um, you know, I'd love to learn from you if you do feel like cooking, but, um, just let us know when you're coming down. We'd love to have you over, invite some folks and, and just, you know, crack a couple of beers and share stories and please let us know. Yeah, I'm, I'm down. I always feel like cooking, so. Yeah. Where, where are you? Well, yeah. Florida's a big place too. I probably should have asked because if you're flying into Miami. Yeah. That, That's a long way. That'd be like, it's almost, it's not Vancouver, but <laughs> it's a long way yeah. away. Well, I just drove 12 hours to shoot a couple of grouse, so I, I, I'll make it there. I'm good. Okay. <laughs> do you know do you know whereabouts of Florida you're coming? Uh, it would probably be Miami. Oh, for no, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I thought for sure it was Disney. Yeah. <laughs> no. Well, won't, won't be offended because that is a that's three and a half four hours away. So yeah. Oh, that's if, nothing. I did that. It, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. You're booked. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll do our best yeah, to make nothing. it worth your drive. Okay. Sounds but, good to me. <laughs> again, I appreciate you joining us, Adam, and uh, we'll catch you guys next week. Before then, make sure you swing on down to the bottom and click that write a review button and leave us that. The, whatever review you think we deserve, but write something. Let us know if it, if it's going to be a one star. Let us know what we can do to uh, to be a little better. If not, then reach all the way over the far right hand side. That's the ones we really love, and hit that five star review and and uh, let us know what you enjoy, so we can keep up the good stuff. But until next week, we'll see you guys. Adios. See. You.